there was a post on Twitter, I want to say two days ago. And then one VC said, don't, don't, isn't the TAM slide in every deck just BS? And I'm like, it's, it's not all BS, but it, I, it helps me figure out how you think of the market. Welcome to Message Engineer for the MedTech Startup. Do you want a clear message that resonates? Compelling message that scales? Competitive message that nails your unique value? On this show, we interview guests across medical device disciplines to help you communicate and message powerfully. Your host, Maureen Schaefer, is a three-time vice president of marketing with 30 years of experience creating money-moving messages from startups to IPO and beyond. Here's your host, Maureen Schaefer. Welcome to the Message Engineer Podcast. I'm here today with Lennard Marcus. Lennard is a general partner with Edison Partners, an award-winning growth investment firm, making it onto GrowthCap's shortlist of best growth investment firms for the second year in a row. Uh, Lennard co-leads the enterprise software practice and makes investments primarily in healthcare IT. Uh, Lennard also serves on the board of Kemp Technologies, eCentire, Lincor and Clinverse, as well as serving as a board observer for the Premier Health Exchange, or PHX. Lennard earned his industrial engineering degree at Stanford and his MBA at Columbia. So welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So uh, we start with kind of what I call define the word warm up. So uh, a couple of words that, I, that are important uh, in, your, in your sphere and we need to know more about. So one, which based on our pre-recording conversation should be an interesting one, pitch deck. Pitch deck. Uh, I define pitch deck as an introduction to a company that uh, enables you to learn what they do, why they're unique, and, and why, why their uniqueness will be sustained. Great answer. What, why, and sustained. Uh, and since uh, Edison Partners is a growth equity investment firm, uh, growth. Growth. So it's really part of our thesis and growth equity. You know, as, as venture expanded beyond venture and you became different segments, growth equity, you're, we are supposed to be accelerators of growth. And, and because of that, the companies that we are investing in generally take our capital because they found product market fit, albeit sometimes in the early stage of the product market fit, and they're taking our capital to expand sales and marketing. So growth equity, you're going to see varied definitions, and, and some view it as companies 40 million and above. Some as low as five million. We we view it as companies generally ten to thirty million, and they're taking our capital uh, to step on accelerator. All right, and and so with us with that when they're when they're coming to you, last word, uh, message. The message to me it needs to be defined by the entrepreneur. Uh, and it's it's what what do you want to leave with me or any investor once the conversation is over? And to me, it can it should be part of your strength. Is your strength your team? Do you have three or 
three or four founders who've who've quote unquote done this before, or is there a uniqueness to your skill sets that makes you one of the one to three top people in the world that should qualify to do this venture? Or is it your technology? But to me, it should be your your uniqueness, but also always what should come through is your is your drive. Uh, great, great answer. The idea of message being what your the investor you are left with when the meeting is over, mm-hmm. right? What you remember, what's conveyed, right. and uh, from the founders, so that you're aware that one to three, they're one to three of the top people in the world qualified, uh, qualified to do this. They're uniquely qualified to do this. Yes. So. Uh, Great, great point. So, for for folks, uh, for folks, can you talk a little bit about the difference between, in in your mind, between there's usually this continuum of. It, it can go many, many. There are many, many paths, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, let's say stereotypically, kind of angel seed, kind of series A, B, et cetera, right? Some non dilutive mixed in there. Um, where in this kind of 10 to 30 are usually coming in? Is that like a bigger series A? Is that a series B? What kind of round is that? You know, what are you looking to have happened in advance of them coming to you? You know, you know, overwhelmingly we are still series A investors. Mm-hmm. And that's because we've built a really good deal sourcing mechanism that we've had and sort of become known for in the industry. And so what we've been able to do is find entrepreneurs who are bootstrapping and are as, and we view them as we get to know them, they're going to be as, as cautious with our dollars as they have with their own. So over, uh, in the majority of our investments, we're actually still series A. Now that said, toward the larger end of the, of the spectrum, we're, we're series B investors. And and from that in that relationship, when you, once you have multiple investors at the table, you just want to make sure that your you share the same thoughts on uh, the outcome, the goal from from both a uh, a magnitude of the sale as well as a timing. You know, people forget that we can't uh, hold on forever. We're not in that business. You know, we have limited partnerships. Our, our funds generally have 10-year partnerships, 10-year horizons. And so th- there is an exit, and we're not forever investors. And we have to make sure that we're aligned with the Series A investor in, in those circumstances. So uh, that makes that makes a lot of sense uh, with that. And so process-wise, it's interesting. You mentioned that you have a unique way uh, that you're known for for deal sourcing for finding these more kind of bootstrapped investments. I think somewhere on your site I saw that you prefer folks to have not done any raises prior to coming out. I, I don't, I don't know if we through. we said prefer. It's it's just our you know we've got a really good group of analysts and associates. We always have. I actually started off at Edison, smiling and dialing as I say it, and so. You get uh, acclimated to to pounding the pavement, going to the conferences, and we try to hire uh, people with an intellectual curiosity 
so that they can go off on tangents and just find these these gems, so to speak. And, and so we've been able to to do that continuously since I joined. And, and because of that, we're, we're Series A investors a lot of time. But again, as, as I say, as, as we move up and raise a, a larger fund and, and the target rate goes from, you know, five to 10 to 10 to 30, we are, we're certainly Series B investors. And then it gets, mm-hmm. you have to have a good relationship with your Series A investor and, and your angels. And on the East Coast, what happened in in the time frame from uh, 16 to early 22, you know, 14 months ago when, when the music stopped, <laughs> as I call it, uh, you just had a lot of sophisticated, New York has a lot of sophisticated angels that had really replaced uh, the, the traditional Series A investors. And so we have to develop these relationships, get a rapport to make sure that we're aligned long term for the life of the investment. Yeah, on the, on the end goal, on the time, you said the, the timeline and the goals, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and some kind of liquidity at some point <laughs> on that timeline. That's what we're all playing for. But it's um, it changes over time with performance. There could be personal circumstances for management. And so we we always have to have an open dialogue, open lines of communication. I thought that was one of the really interesting things that I saw on your website and was this idea of tact, right? Trust, accountability, commitment, and transparency. Uh, And I have it here. We communicate openly, honestly, and directly saying what we mean and mean meaning what we say. And I hear from a lot of people that that's maybe not always the case or that's not their perception that that's always the case when they're working sure. with investors. And so why is that something that's really important to Edison? And what do you look for then in other people to make sure they're matching with your. Well, it's the reason it's, it's with us is we're we're going to, we have what we call the Edison edge and that's a group of operating partners. So if I sit on your board, you're not just getting me, you're going to get, you know, Greg Nicastro, who helps with product. You're going to get Marianne McDonough, who helps with go to market. And so we're going to have multiple touch points that in the sale process, diligence, and post-closing are trying to help everyone succeed. And hopefully through those multiple touch points, you'll get the fact that we're only here to, to optimize the outcome. Mm-hmm. During the, the, the initial selling process, not to be confused with the sale process, growth investment, when I'm trying to get the, uh, we're all working hard to try to get the founder or founders to select Edison over someone else. You know, I, I'm being pretty honest and straightforward. I'm known for being pretty direct um, with what I see as the pluses, the challenges, and the things that we we need to work together to do post-investment. And I think more often than not, uh, the mature founder or founders appreciate that. And oftentimes they know they just want, a, they can appreciate a second set of eyes or groups of eyes and it is to, to tell them that. Because many times as founders, it's, you know, you, you rarely, you're drinking from the, from the fire hose and you rarely have time to stop, take a, a step back. 
You know, running a business is tough. It's a full-time job. And then some. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. Yes. You've been in that position. Yeah. Yes, I have. <laughs> Sometimes are easier than other times, but it's all yeah. it's all upside and it's all learning. So so that's good. Uh so when, you know, one of the, one of the things a lot of people wonder about different firms have different ways of, and so you have this unique way of having your analysts go out and kind of scour and look for these gems, you call them. Mm -hmm. uh, if folks are approaching you, what, what is the process? I see people saying, oh, I heard it's, I have to have a two page kind of memo background or formatted that I need to send in. It's like a mini business plan. And for other people say, no, it's a short form of your pitch deck and other people say, no, it's a, the executive summary of your business plan. It, it literally can be any or all of the above. And, and I get outreach, you know, certainly on a weekly, if not daily basis, uh, a one pager, something, you know, two pager, anything that can summarize in, in a really granular format, what you do, uh, why you're unique, and then why you want to raise capital. Those are the three most important things. And if I get that, you'll, you'll, and it's in a, a seg segment that we like, Edison likes, I'll even take it myself, send you internally to the, to the partner or the team that, that really focuses on that segment. But we're, we're going to be sure to, uh, to review and really learn more about the opportunity. And then if, if folks, uh, what sort of folks are you seeing now? What sorts of um, deals? And you specialize in healthcare IT, and there's a lot happening in healthcare yes. IT, right? And a lot happening in healthcare overall. And uh, one of the things I heard at Avamed's the MedTech conference in October, November, mm -hmm. that all this, like the CEO of Medtronic and BD, and the, the larger firms were talking about was. It used to be, which is what I historically know, is you know it has to be a clinical. You have to tell there has to be a clinical need. You need to understand that, and you have to have kind of the economic, you know, needs. The economic story needs to match up as well yeah. across the range of individuals, right? Who weigh in, if you will. I call it the customer constellation. Sometimes there are a lot of people, <laughs> and so they started to talk about now. There's a third piece. Now there's a third pillar right? And it's workflow. Whereas 20 years ago, if you talked about saving time, people were like, I, I don't care. Like, unless you're replacing a human being. And so I could yeah. monetize it. It what, what do I care about saving 10 minutes in the OR? And so I'm wondering, in from the healthcare IT perspective, are you finding that a workflow is something that has risen up? Is it something that Folks are trying to solve. Uh, it, it definitely is, and I, and I think a couple of a couple of drivers. One is as you move to value based care, you are going to have to prove that you manage the patient uh, in a much more efficient manner, and you improve outcomes, and you decrease readmissions. And the only way you can do that is through continuity. Uh, between the different uh, segments of healthcare. Now, you're, you've worked in healthcare, and everyone listening to podcasts may not have the same level of exposure. <laughs> healthcare is a very segmented, siloed industry. 
my my wife's a physician, and I think on any day she goes to much as many as seven different systems, you know, to to get data for her patients. So workflow is is going to be a big part of it in conjunction with interoperability, because you're trying to get there's a push to get one standard uh, information system or information format for healthcare. And there's been that push for a long, long time. And and so healthcare is still very much behind the other verticals and, and or industries. And, and so workflow is definitely going to, it's going to have to help because you, you, you don't want to be viewed as a burden. And oftentimes uh, healthcare views anything that changes the status quo as a burden. If you think if you think of EMR EHRs, you know what Cerner went public in what the mid or 80s. EMRs were, I remember my my wife's mother's a physician. She wrote her when she was at Michigan Medical School in, in the late 80s, early 90s. And yet you had the US didn't reach exceed 51% of dots of EMR HR until 2015, I believe, when Obama incented. And why is that? Because if you talk to any practice, they implemented EMR HR, it it killed their workflow. And I saw a report that said less than 5% ever returned to the initial throughput that they did prior to the EMR HR. And that's bad because in the old pay for a service, it's as many patients as you, you get paid. Now you shift to value-based care. You have to you have to have interoperability is going to be a key component. But fortunately, what's happened, and I think a big silver lining is is COVID and the push to to what we are doing, just virtual care, mm-hmm. and and uh, practices adopting telehealth. And you talk to many, and they would see ROI in six months. Wow! I had one say that it was in, in less than three months, and I've heard several physicians in their late sixties say it's the first time they adopted anything in in healthcare, any technology that had a less than two year ROI. Wow. So it's huge for them just because they realize they, it can be done. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> it works. It, it works. Work. But everything else, it's it's uh, it does. Time doesn't help. It may help with safety. You know, my, my wife is a gynecological oncologist, and she'll use the robots for for smaller mm-hmm. uh, surgical margins. As they say it helps with safety, but. Those procedures are an hour, an hour and a half longer. Yeah, it's not right. It's more precise and takes right. more time to be more precise. Right. right. So hopefully, get a better, yeah. better result, better margins, cleaner margins. Uh, you know that makes sense. I think in the healthcare IT side, in this, you're talking a little bit about um, the continuity and about telehealth. And it's in, it's interesting to think about because there's a lot of chatter about continuum of care, right? And to your point about interoperability, and then if you can act, if you can, if when when you get everything connected, <laughs> and when yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> Everything's interoperable and you can see it all somewhere, right? And you've dropped some machine learning, deep learning, whatever's appropriate into it and are able to roll up insights, not just a giant data trove in the direction of a provider or physician right. or patient. Um, to get that continuum working, uh, how does how does that happen? Where do you start? It feels a bit like, you know, eating an elephant in a way. Where does it start? My sense is it's going to start, it has to start at the primary care. This is a hell of a question. You're asking me to solve healthcare. <laughs> the biggest Come on. Problem. My it's a sense, sunny day in New Jersey. My sense is it has to start with the primary care physician. That's that's just my sense, only because that's the physician that patients see the most often. Mm -hmm. The challenge is when you have a condition and you have to see a specialist, uh, the specialist um, and the primary care have to be able to see the same patient record, uh, the same timing of the patient record. You know, I've met many people who, who unfortunately have lost uh, loved ones because of the lack of coordination between the primary care and the specialist. This patient's diabetic. Didn't know they're diabetic. Oh, this patient's allergic to this procedure and you go for your dialysis and they just didn't know. And a lot of the dialysis providers still use facts. That's a much, generally a much older doctor. A lot of young physicians don't want to work in that segment. So I, I think it starts with primary care, but it also starts with then on the back end, <clears throat> moving to a, a language or a protocol that's universal. You finally get all the EMRs, you force them to share data. They've actually had <laughs> legislation involved, but all we know that a couple of the large ones, and I'm not going to name them, have still refused to share data. Um, and then what will happen is you'll have one holistic real-time view of the patient. You'll be aware of everything he or she is allergic to, susceptible to, and they can be treated uh, most accurately and most appropriately. Now, the, the challenge is what I actually think is going to happen is going to be the actual reverse, and it's going to start with the specialist, and that's because you have... What is it, 50,000 people a week turning 55 or 65, the baby boomers, and they have a lot of political capital uh, they get listened to, and they're going to speak loudly and be heard. And because of age, you're going to have a, a, a population that's already, uh, let's just say, more medicated than their younger counterparts. And so it may actually start as a specialist. That's a great point. Yeah, there's that uh, growth in the prevalence of chronic conditions, the number of chronic conditions, and people once, yeah, the, the magical age of 65. Yeah. <laughs> we start, they and all go to the government. Yeah, we have a lot of factors that are going to say the callus is going to be from the younger, I mean, from the older, because you're going to have aging at home. You know, my European business school friends, why, why don't you guys... Why don't you guys live with your parents? You know, I was like, well, I don't know. We don't love our parents any less. They just like to live in their own places, you know. So now you've got, you know, the the a lot of the care management, a lot of the the specialists are going to have care management 
as a offshoot of practice, things like that. A lot of possibilities. Mm-hmm. What it's interesting to think, do you think, and I need to get back to kind of the investment piece, but telehealth and going to places to get care, you know, where do you see it? We've seen the boom in telehealth, right? Because of kind of pandemic fueled, if you will. Sure. Uh, and uh, that's kind of off to the races. Uh, it's certainly more convenient. I've definitely used it at times when I'm perfectly capable of making an appointment. It's a pain to make an appointment. It's a pain to wait three to four weeks to get a slot when I can jump on my computer and do other work while it sits there and ticks the clock away and yeah. bang, up comes the person, up comes the physician, right? So and they have access to my records or some portion of them, right? They're associated with Hackensack. Yeah. Look, I, I, telehealth is here to stay. I think there you, you've had some uh, segments of, of different industries that are were called COVID fads. Telehealth is not one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one wants to go to the, to the hospital or the doctor. As you just stated, if you can pull it up, pull him or her up on your computer, and and you have a situation that that can be addressed via telehealth. Why why not? It's convenience. We we are healthcare aside, our lives are much more complex, much more time consuming. You know, I don't I don't work forty hours a week like my parents did. <laughs> and so telehealth is here to stay. No question. Fair point. I could go down a whole road on that. I just find it really fascinating what's happening in healthcare, right? You and I have been in this kind of general space, if you will, of healthcare for a while. And uh, it's, it's exciting to see all the change that's taking place. It's good. It's good to see the providers and the payers recognizing that they spent money and got their money's worth with telehealth investment. That's what's good because because that'll helpfully sort of be a catalyst to, to look, the, the sales cycles are still going to be long when you sell to a, a hospital because they tend to make decisions by committees. Mm-hmm. But um, the fact that they were able to, to invest in something that gave them a quick ROI uh, and help their business should, should help the next um, – product that that's someone's trying to sell into you know your purview of healthcare it we mm-hmm. we've touched on telehealth we've mentioned hospitals let's say health systems uh home came up <laughs> sure. now where uh with healthcare it uh, we've talked about moving towards interoperability right continuum of care those kind of like lofty future goals um what are some of the things right now that are kind of most interesting to you? Is it is it still interop- is it still healthcare IT in hospital and hospital systems? Is it folks who can kind of extend like Brigham's buying up durable medical equipment providers and getting into the home marketplace? Is it I think that's gonna continue. You're gonna see the the sort of localization of of care. And I think you're gonna you're going to continue to see uh, companies like, uh, you know, City Block or, or things of that nature, where everything's becoming local. Um, I also think, you know, taking a step back and, and is, 
I considered healthcare IT. Some would call it pharma IT. You, you saw with COVID now ability to get drugs to market, you know, in, in you know, 18 months as opposed to, you know, I was always told 12 to 13 years. Mm-hmm. Technologies and systems that help, you know, the clinical research and, and clinical trial process. And, and where where will we sort of normalize in a post-COVID world for the average drugs, you know, for non-pandemic? And then hopefully it's not back to, you know, 13 years. It's, it won't be 12 to 24 months, but hopefully it's it's somewhere in between. Yeah, the ability um, to reduce the time to market. Yeah, just you just have to. Yeah, you just have innovations to. Along the population demographics, just the the ability to, you know, aging in home is going to be aging in place. It's just going to be big, and so the ability to to provide uh, a good care continuity for seniors is, and it's going to test and push to really push the envelope with the interoperability. But it's going to be really important over the next you know several decades. I- there's a right. There's a lot of talk. There's a. It, I find it interesting to see that in places like um, there's a lobby group called Moving Health Home, that I think Amazon's definitely a part of. I think Walmart's a part of, and then like CVS and Amwell and you know some of the usual suspects are mm-hmm. in there as well. Uh, and to think about this concept of logistics and our. Uh, are companies really best set up, health, whether it's healthcare or even like a Cardinal or Medline, are they set up to be the folks who are providing or is it still DME? Or does DME shift and go away and become something else? Right. You know, how, how do you logistically get things to those patients and then get information back out, right? And we see as with most new markets, a lot of fragmentation, or at least I see a lot of fragmentation. I have this cool remote blood pressure monitor, and I have this cool remote. I'll, I'll let you know if grandma hasn't gotten out of bed in a day, you know, 24 hours. And I have, right, everyone's, there's this plethora happening, which is really interesting to see. And then you see kind of the middle children, like the current health, who are trying to take all that data mm-hmm. in and ingest it and pipe it out to the EHR to make some sense of it. I mean, where do you, where are some of the kind of trends? Where do you see things kind of heading? I think it's going to be important that you get some of the new players. You know, you mentioned Amazon. You get some of these people in here that have expertise from another industry to, to help with things like logistics. And I think um, what will happen is that will force the incumbents to sort of raise their bar and think differently. And because, again, of the population demographics, I think everyone has an interest uh, in, in health care. You, you'll see Salesforce with a care management platform. Google has, has played in healthcare in, in multiple ways, sort of dipping their toe. And I think they're trying to find uh, the optimal angle, particularly for the larger public companies. But I, I do think that's going to be a segment where you're going to get multiple uh, players. Traditionally, in other segments, they're going to come in and, and help help 
that continue to to trend in, in the optimal direction for service. And what do you think the, uh, I love thinking about adjacencies and adjacent industries because there's so much we can learn from them. <laughs> adjacencies in adjacent industries. Okay. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, I'm saying the same thing twice for double emphasis. <laughs> and uh, there's so much to be learned when we look, when we, I say I like stick my head up outside of healthcare, look around, yeah. right? There's so many other things happening outside of the U.S. as well, as you pointed out with your European friends and colleagues. Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, that we have the opportunity to learn that we never really got great at in healthcare that other people become really good at. And, and I'm not sure why that is. I mean, we, if you think of of the U.S. because I've, I've had I had this conversation years ago in business school. It's it's our healthcare system is very local. If you think of countries, most will have a, several payers, mm-hmm. and we have different states. Your healthcare is by your state, so it's it's very local. It was always that way, and 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 it's worked. And the challenge for us as a country is to figure out over the next several decades, how do we continue to evolve, to optimize it, and, and, and frankly, drive out some costs. You know, I, I sit on the board of a company, Capital Rx, which is a 2.0 PBM. And one of the things they're working to do is just have price transparency for drugs, drug costs for employers. And, and unbeknownst to me, prior to making an investment, there was never a pri- any pricing data in a PBM contract with an employer. Really? Yeah. And so, you know, you 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 just have certain segments of healthcare which are uh, very bloated, uh, but then you have certain aspects where we have to continue to prove. I mean, my, again, my wife's physician. And she was talking to me last week about shortage of cancer drugs. Mm. I had no idea there was a shortage of cancer drugs. But but the U.S. right now is under um, its worst drug shortages in the last 20 years. And so we, we have to manage all of this as, you know, we are the number one, I don't have to tell you, country in the world for drug consumption. Yeah, so so these things need to be top of top of mind for us. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Um, from a, what do you see as some of the interesting roles that healthcare IT can play in moving towards this more um, transparent continuum of care, aging in home? I mean, what? What are some of the things that healthcare IT is doing or needs to do or um, that is maybe not so obvious? <laughs> I think several things, and, and we've touched on a couple of them, but, but having doctors, all physicians, primary care specialists, you name it, have access to the accurate patient data. So, so the interoperability and the workflow, sort of where we started the conversation, I think is is just going to be crucial. Uh, I think continued use of of 
and, and refinement of telehealth. You know, you're going to have, as you have aging at home, just want to be able to check in on these patients. Mm -hmm. uh, I think technologies, I'm trying to remember the name of the company, it's escaping me, where the, you know, diabetes can actually get their blood sugar measured without prick pricking uh, their fingers. You know, diabetes is very, very prevalent in my family. So that would be huge. And, and, and that's literally the number one most costly condition to our healthcare system. So managing diabetes, improving management of diabetics would certainly help with cost management. And, and then I think just continue the continued adoption and shift toward um, value-based care is going to help have the, the physicians and the practitioners really incented to improve care and move away from, continue to shift away from what I call the old through, throughput model. The volume model. Yeah. Right. So it's, I mean, those, those are just going to be huge. Uh, I think that if we roll back for a minute to, we kind of like went, went deep down the healthcare <laughs> Out into healthcare, we kind of zoom back up for a minute. Uh, I get a lot of questions as to where when we started earlier. You know what what should I do as far as outreach, and then what mm -hmm. happens? And so, could could you give us kind of what that process looks like, and what you're looking for, what maybe some you know positive signs along the sure. way, and some I, hey, red flags along the way. So here. First, first, rule number one, reach out to people or entities that have a history of investing in companies in your sector. Um, and it's funny, I, I, I've touched on it before, but I'll, I'll, I'll touch on it from the antithesis. The ones I, I don't like receiving are, you know, I'm, I'm investing in, or I've got a great idea for a new rail system. I read your site. I've seen Edison Partners. I'm like, you didn't read my site. You didn't read it. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> you know, I'm not, you know, I'm probably not going to do that one. You know, um, so I would say all the VCs, whether it's growth equity, early stage, late stage PE, they tend to list their portfolio companies. They tend to list their area of focus. You have HLM and others that only do healthcare. So, so if you're a healthcare uh, CEO and entrepreneur, you probably can't go wrong there because it's likely they've done some aspect or segment, some investment over the years. But be cognizant of those that have an interest in your segment. Uh, I'd say number two, try to reach out to both a senior person and a junior person. You know, the the everyone is tasked with trying to find new deals. Overwhelmingly, uh, your focus on that declines as you ascend uh, in the industry. Uh, and I think the third thing is, is try to see if you have any, you know, check LinkedIn, become a LinkedIn guru. Do you have anyone, any... Who, who can, any representative who can either provide a warm introduction or, or, or vouch for you in your last job or, or venture of some sort. 
And I think from there, you know, it, it, the way we, we work in teams, you have the healthcare team, T team, enterprise, FinTech, and we discuss the, the various opportunities. And then we talk about why, uh, why we have an interest in a specific company or sub segment industry sub segment. Uh, and then I would, I would say the other big thing is know how much money you need. And is that aligned with, you know, and align that with the entity. If you only need 2 million, you know, we're, we're typically writing, you know, 12, 15 million minimum checks, mm-hmm. you know, so, so know that the, the, um, Entities you're reaching out with and the checks that they write align with your your need. All right. So check out the portfolio companies. Don't approach you with railway system ideas when you invest in healthcare IT. <laughs> yeah. I'm guessing Thanks. maybe that actually happened. <laughs> yes. That I mean, it's been a lot of them. You just like, well, I've read you. I'm like, you didn't read the website. Yeah. Uh that yeah, that remind my first interview question is always why do you want to work for, insert name of company, right? And if you can't, and then answer if you're that. like, uh, well, I don't. Know. <laughs> very yeah. short. It's very short. Very call. short interview. Short <laughs> interview. Uh yeah, reaching out to kind of a junior and senior person, great idea, mm-hmm. uh, great mm-hmm. advice, and yeah, trying to find a warm intro. Yeah, someone you can and, say. And you have, yeah, there's a misconception that you have to have, you don't have to have a warm intro. It just helps. You don't have to have a warm intro at all. Yeah, and then making sure that what you're looking for aligns with what you all are providing. Yeah. Money wise. <laughs> yeah. So that may, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So then let's say you, whatever they've sent you, however they've been introed. Uh, you say, "Hey, this looks interesting to us. We want to talk to them." What does what does that next step look like? Next step is call, and an intro call for me. I usually I try to break the ice and be um, transparent and say, "Look, I, I just want to hear about your background. Uh, Why did you start the company? What do you feel like makes you know you the product unique?" Uh, and then how much capital you want to raise. And so usually it's a 30 to 40 minute call. I want to really get a feel for them actually in the intro call more so than the actual company and, and their ability to position the company and what, what comes through when they do that. Um, and then after that, if, you know, I'll debrief with my team. And if, if, if I felt it was compelling, We'll either go to a combination of second call or or a meeting. And then what are you what are you looking for in that second meeting? So you've done the call, you have a sense for this the person, you know a little bit about the company. Uh, at this meeting, is it is it typically a you or you and a couple of myself, a couple of colleagues. Usually we usually we'll we'll put a couple of partners on the deal as well as I'll certainly grab someone from my operating team as well as the the uh, associate or analyst on the on the uh, deal uh, for a, a first in person meeting. Mm-hmm. Really want to go through the the pipeline and talk about uh, the product. Why is it unique? 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to be technology and technology-enabled services investors. So there is generally a product involved. Why is it unique? How do you develop it? How do you manage development? How do you manage the, the pipeline when you go to market? And, and then get an idea of, of near-term momentum. And then the most important is get their thoughts on the, the competition. And then the total addressable market. And, I, and I'm laughing when I say that because there was a post on Twitter, I want to say two days ago. And then one VC said, don't, don't, isn't the TAM slide in every deck just BS? And I'm like, it's, it's not all BS, but it, I, it helps me figure out how you think of the market. Always over a billion dollars. I think everyone's been told it's got to be a billion dollar market. But I never, I will never, unless I think it's it's ridiculous, I will never, to a founder, say it's no way it's billion. As we're leaving, going home, I'll tell my colleagues, yeah, there's no way that's a billion dollar market. (laughs) (laughs) So let, uh, one quick kind of dive in on this. Uh, we went through this period of, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, of, right, TAM's been around for a long time, right, total available market, and then there's SAM and SOM, and, right, so do you want to see all of those? Do you just, are you good with TAM as long as they can talk to it and explain where they're starting, like how that boils down and where as they're that, starting? As long as, at that point, as long as they can talk to it and explain where they're starting, and then what I, I mean... What then we can do is go and and look in various segments and see, okay, how much of this market is generally available annually? Uh, a lot of healthcare is tends to be lumpy. Um, and again, the decision-making process is, is a little more, um, just not as smooth as some of the other segments. And so we're trying to, See, you know, is, is how much is available annually? New product, product replacement, greenfield, and and the things of that nature, and that we can get from our various uh, analysts. We know people within the industry. At Edison, we have what we call the Edison Director Network. These are people who work with us for for years that are in healthcare, fintech, and we can call them and and have outreach to get the the triangulate toward a proper number. That makes a lot of sense. Triangulating on the number. I always figure if we're building a new... It's it's always a guess. And oftentimes, we aren't accurate. But you you also have to account for an ability and the portability of what what someone does and its portability to other segments. I mean, I, in, in addition to healthcare, I do cyber. And my, my mm-hmm. and the company eCentire, that when we invested 90% of their, and, and, and they are a uh, MDR, managed detection and response. So they manage your cyber posture for you um, and respond if you get hacked. They were 90% hedge funds. I'm like, oh, the hedge fund industry isn't that big. And I'm like, yeah, but if you think of it, everyone needs this. I said, and this was about nine years ago. And so then they went and they were very good at segment segmenting a market. All right, so what what are other sectors that have very important or, or high-priced assets online and don't have great health care or, or great IT? 
So we went from hedge funds to larger financial services to oil and gas to healthcare to legal. Boom. So it's a multi. It's a. It's we still own a small portion. We recapped over a billion dollars, and Eastern Tires growing, continuing to grow extremely well. So you have to you have to account for the portability of what what this entity does to other sectors or subsegments. Where other markets into which it can grow or scale is it? Bingo. Yeah, it can expand. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, so they come in, they do the kind of in real life meeting. You're looking at go to market partners. Uh, sorry, your partners in the room, the op teams in the room, go to market pipeline product competition in particular. Uh, when do you then expect to be able to get entrance to a deal room where you can get your analysts can get all the rest of the information they need? So after that point, we're we're asking them for financials. We usually like to get, you know, last two years quarterly, current year projected next year. Mm-hmm. And then what we'll do is we'll prepare an internal uh, memo for what we call our deal room, which we have every Monday. Initially, we'll have a one pager early in the process, introduce the company, tell them why we like it. And you'll get feedback around the table. Say, okay, we'd like to know a little more about this, X, Y, Z. As we get deeper into the process and we learn more after we, we get access and in, in to the greater materials, additional materials, we'll provide a more uh, substantive memo mm-hmm. and propose to our team, here's, here's what we think a deal looks like. And at that point, you'll get feedback on the parameters of the deal. And once you have that internally, I can present something to the magic team, yeah, an IOI, indication of interest. And we'll go back and forth because they never just take it and say, yes, we'll take this. Right, <laughs> term sheet, we love it. It's yeah, perfect. exactly. We'll Shocking. go back and forth. And assuming we can consummate the deal and, and they sign it, Usually we're ask, asking for, you know, 50 days. Um, still not back to, to, to pre, six, used to be 60. Then when, again, 16 to 23, when the run up, when everything got hot, you know, it got as low as 30 or 35, which, which doesn't make sense. But um, during diligence, we are doing a uh, tech review. We go and we, we study the, make sure the data, database is scalable. We get a third party to do that, review the sales, the, the development processes. We'll go a deep dive on the go-to-market marketing, positioning, management of the pipeline. Uh, and then we'll get we'll have an internal resource to an accounting interview to ensure that uh, you know management of payables, receivables, cash management is um, and if it's not up to snuff, it's something we can get up to. Uh, an appropriate uh, level investment. I should say appropriate level post-investment. And then what we're doing is we're creating what we call the 180-day plan. And we say these are the these are the things that we want to really focus on the first 180 days post-investment. You know, and these things could be, you know, hiring a CTO, hiring a VP engineering, uh, ensuring getting all the management properly incented, 
from a bonus perspective. Oftentimes, prior to investment, every senior manager has a bonus. That bonus isn't tied to the company's, you know, revenue EBITDA. And what we'll try to do is align it. Okay, X percent if you hit this, you know, the various metrics that we view, we, we work with management to identify, drive, or optimize enterprise value. And we're trying and we're working to get their sign off on the 180 day plan uh, before we're wiring. For the money transfers. Before the money. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Has to be, have to get that buy in before the money hits the bank. Yeah. So you have a clear view of what's going to get them to, you know, on the trajectory that you need them to be on. We do, and because we're momentum investors, they're, they're oftentimes they're, they're they're on that trajectory on the early stages of it. But but they're they may have you know again no, almost no alignment between the senior team and and what the company actually achieves. Mm-hmm. Um, really, in the infancy of HR, you've got to have. I mean, recruiting again twelve months ago had been was extremely hard for about three or four years from from you know. 18 to 19 to 22 uh, get HR in place. There's several component, key components that tend to tend to be lacking. Uh, and then it's a driving a, a common voice with the, the, the management team and, and the board. That makes a lot of sense. What are, you know, when, you, when you've done investments, what are some of the commonalities that you see with uh, these teams that set them apart from, let's say, the majority of folks who you have, you know, send in materials or be introduced to you. Kind of what's the what's the difference? I think when you have a team that has um, sort of the major components covered, so product go to market and then just strong leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, leadership is an intangible. It's viewed very differently to different people, but you can generally tell when you're sitting with a group, if there's a good degree of cohesion, if everyone's on the same page and that just, that just counts tremendously. You know, it's great to have a great product offering a great technology when everyone uh, has an oar and everyone's or has a paddle and you're paddling the same direction um, then you you have you will have you're likely to have much greater success I like that a paddle in and in the same direction yeah. <laughs> one one does not necessarily indicate yeah. the other yeah but also you you want teams that have an open environment where they can challenge each other you know, so you're looking for leaders and, and not really kings and queens. At least, at least that's what I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. Like that, not looking for kings and queens. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. Oh, go ahead. No, I said no. It's That's great. Awesome. So we have that. We have the term sheet. I wanted I wanted to ask you a couple of things. One, 
there when I was in Silicon Valley, when I lived in San Francisco for eight years. Uh, I guess you lived down there. <laughs> I lived in a few places. Well. And uh, there was this there was this term. I remember sitting down with this uh, one investor, and he had put in, I think, a million dollars of his own money. He had built prototypes. He right, had advisors. He had a board. He had and he had term sheets. He had three term sheets, mm-hmm. and he didn't like them. Do you remember why? It had to be price. Price is usually the number one. It's founder and dilution, right? It's and there was this there was this phrase of um, eat when you are served, which which meant I don't know if it's still around, but which meant if you if you were building something and people want to give you money mm-hmm. and you don't like what it looks like, you ought to take it and live to fight another day. Take it and then rocket ship yourself forward and then go for the better deal. So I'm wondering, I hear a lot of angst from early stage founders who bootstrapped and built it themselves and have put their, in their own money. You know, what are, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think the founder has to, Have a have to rationalize. Does she does he or she have the independent resources to just say, "I don't need these term sheets." Right. I'm going to go forward on my own and and get a high evaluation. You know, when I, when I talk at schools or any events, they say, "Hey, what what do you what is it that you do most?" <laughs> and what, and sometimes jokingly, I say. Talk valuation to founders. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, yep. if you if and if you can afford to do that, um, then you can reach, you should reach out to the investors, uh, tell them thanks, but no thanks. I think we're worth appreciably more. Don't be smug, don't be snarky, just don't. You'd be surprised how many founders you probably wouldn't have passed on something, been smug, and then just round of money, and then you burned a bridge, mm-hmm. and now you're out. You need money, and now you're vulnerable. Um, and so, and, and if you can realistically afford to move forward, go ahead. But but you also have to rationalize how, how many VCs did you talk to? I, I tell founders. You ex- I tell my companies, you exist in a market. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, I've sold only a couple companies over a billion dollars. And, and so you need to look at a realistic price. The market says that this is what the value of this company is. And then to me, the only of the decision is, do you have the means to continue for it without accepting one of these term sheets? And, and I don't have to tell you overwhelmingly, that's the main issue. It's price. It's not board seats. It's not uh, anti-dilution. You know, it, it's price. 
Yeah. They think yeah. it's valued at a higher. Yeah. They're in a different place. So it's, it's, and if there's a delta, a reasonable delta, try to negotiate the delta. There's no one sitting on my side of the table who hasn't been through a, a, a pricing valuation discussion. But if, if you're worlds apart, and I, and I guess the question for the founders is, if you're worlds apart with every term sheet, mm. maybe, maybe, maybe the investors aren't wrong. Now, if your world's apart and you, you've spoken with five to six investors and there's one you really like and you're and they came in the lowest, maybe you can go in and triangulate. Mm -hmm. You know, every everything's a negotiation, unfortunately. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Uh so okay. Term sheets and deals and then what are um let's say you get it. You get a board seat, you're on their board, you have the 180-day plan. Uh, what are some of the things that are, what should I say? What are some of the best, so you have the 180-day plan, you're looking um, kind of further out. Uh, at what point do you, what kind of red flags are, are the more common things that kind of pop up in those year couple years kind of post investment where it requires conversation and potentially heading in a different direction. Uh, I think when, when, when there have been red flags, a lot of it was around um, communication. One, one thing for an investor is you, you get to know the CEO, you get to know the founder, founder, but you want to get to know all the senior people. You know, you want to get their feedback. They're senior C-level people because they're important. And and sometimes a red flag is when the CEO or founder and co-founders don't want you to get to know, don't want you to have access to the rest of the team. And and that will will generally uh, show itself in diligence. So that's a that's a big red flag. You know that to me that's that's one of the largest. You know at the lower end, you know you 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 want to hit your number, you want to do that, but but diligence can be somewhat. It's a distraction to run a company while you're doing a full diligence. You know we we do a thorough diligence. So you come out, you hit your number. Are you are you making the investments that we outlined in 180 day plan do they all of a sudden sort of give you the heisman and and <laughs> they're not available to talk and aren't as communicative the the red flags are generally around communication you know if you're communicating with us we, we not, not every deal is home run and and we're working together maybe there was things we all missed we're going to stand by you and, and work hard to, to get this to, to a rational outcome. But the red flags are generally around communication and access. Yeah, access to all the kind of senior C-level folks to talk to yeah. them about what's going on and what's happening and how they view things and as part of due diligence and on an ongoing basis. Yeah. 
So, so uh, from you a should be. Have you been in? Have you ever made an investment? Angel investment? I have not. You have not. You should. You've been in this so long. You should. You should feel what it is to sit on the side of things. That is an excellent point. I've sat on this side even, of the table Even before. just an angel investment, you'll you'll get the same feelings. Yeah, and that communication, you want to hear what's going on and what's happening. And yeah. Not there two days after aspects. something hits the fan. <laughs> there's, there's negative aspects of everything. You know, and so, hey, what, what bothers you? What keeps you up at night? Can't be nothing. You know? I mean, my, my wife and I have been married, what, over 20 years now. And if I just stopped one day and said, hey, what am I doing wrong? And the next thing I know, I look down and watch, I'm like, damn, it's been 15 minutes. She's still talking. <laughs> so You asked so the question. Talk about, right? Open the door. I'm reading, I'm reading this uh, book. I'm part of this entrepreneurial group and it meets in the mornings, uh, Monday mm-hmm. through Friday. And we're reading You Owe You by Eric Thomas. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things he talks about in the chapter we're on right now is basically doing a performance assessment with all the important people in your life. I mean, yes, yes, work and your job, but also like you said, oh, yeah. You know, asking your spouse or asking your kids or asking, how's it going? How am I doing? How have... So reading it last night and thinking, I wonder what my son will say. How how old is your son? Just turned 13. Ooh. That's that's, that's one of the optimal ages of, like, male candor. (laughs) Honestly, at 13, you, you still feel indestructible. You still feel like there's no... You know, nothing could go wrong. You should ask. That's a hell of an exercise. You should, you should ask them. I will when, when I have some time, like the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> you mentally prepared for the answers. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He's, yeah. Male candor. I can't wait. Yeah. Well, it's also, I mean, boys just kind of, they're, they're just, I mean, I've got three sons. How old are yours? You just live in their own little world sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, my sons are 11, 10, and 5. So, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's, um, but no, I've heard that. You know, one, see if everyone, are they, are they helping you? Are they, you know, it's, it's, uh, that's tough. And I tell my portfolio companies, you know, how, how, how can I help you? Talk to them once a week, once every two weeks. Mostly, mostly actually more than once a week. How can I help you? Well, here, here's how I think I can help you. How do you think I can help you? And it's, it's really when we're both aligned with how I can help you, that's when we're doing really well. Oh, you need me to do that too? Okay, that's fine. It makes, yeah, absolutely. Because you want to see them succeed, right? Yes. We want, you want to see I them want do to well. See you invested, uh, I often share with people, you, you need to understand people's motivations. So if you're selling something into the healthcare system, 
You need to think about the patient, whoever's touching it, right? Who's ever using it? Who's ever prescribing it? Who's ever paying? Who's paying for it? Who's reimbursing it? Right? All of yeah. these, kind of all of these folks, and um, what are the incentives? Right? What do they want to do? What do they want to happen? And, and I think, and the other thing is, be prepared over time that that could change. You know, we we are. I think our average hold period is just over six years. It's a long time. And things can change. You know, there are a lot of, of companies 24 months ago that were deemed unicorns that frankly aren't anymore. And so everyone has to now readjust their expectations, cut the burn, and, and rationalize what, what, is, what is success now. That is a great question. What is success now? It's not what it was 12 months ago, right? No, something completely different. Certainly not what it was in 2019. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. So it's, that, yeah. that was very much a different time. What, to, to that point about what is success now, right? We know what happened to Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic and... You know, the uh, lots of chatter about investment ratcheting downward at a rapid pace. Uh, I'm wondering from from your standpoint, uh, has there been any pullback? Are you still kind of steadily moving forward to your plan? And what what does that look like? We're still, there's been no major pullback. I mean, we're... <clears throat> A big, a key indicator of success for us historically has always been growth at time and investment. And what you now have seen is, outside of a couple of segments, uh, growth is slow. Sales cycles have elongated, um, but we're still making investments. Now, what every invest investment uh, or investor has done is you have to really attend to their portfolio. Uh, get the burn down, try to ensure people or these entities have enough capital on the balance sheets. You prefer to not raise money until, you know, second half of next year, because that's when everyone believes that, that things will be a little more on solid footing. And, and so you're getting in with your, portfolios to a much, much uh, more intimate uh, degree and uh, reserving capital for their needs. And then you're going to look for uh, the new investments. And then I, I do have peers that just said, you know, we're just going to sit out <laughs> for the next X number of months. And they don't, um, I think the macro they, they believe could go a little longer or they just don't want to risk it. Yeah, but my sense, my sense is the the particularly public entities they're going to need to show growth and they're not going to be able to get on there organically so so they'll go back to they'll become much more acquisitive you know three quarters from now yeah that that makes that makes a lot of sense uh and it makes sense that you're reserving more capital for your current companies because the trajectory has perhaps extended a little bit. Yeah, well, 
Based on it current add, this, this may add 12 to 20 months in terms of a whole period for some companies. And, and some of which were not break even yet. Many of which weren't break even yet. So you need to reserve more capital for that. Yeah, until they get to that, until they get to that point in time. Yeah. Uh, just to kind of roll back really quickly, I get a lot of uh, questions about pitch decks, and uh, I was for a period of time, I don't know, five, six or so years, part of this uh, Duke Startup Challenge judging. And uh, then they shifted that to only have venture capital folks uh, do that, which I totally understand. Uh, And uh, there's another group, this Rosamond Institute, um, whom I help a bit with some of the founders' startups messaging. uh, And I'm doing one-on-ones with them right now with their pitch decks, right? So that's one of the reasons why I asked you about the definition of that. Up so front. you've seen thousands at this point. So tell me, how, how how are their decks this year? Do they get better every year? Because the, act, the, 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 the information available is off the charts now, right? So, so do, do the, are the decks getting better every year? I would say a little bit. <laughs> I think there's still, um, I think one of the things is that what I see is as a founder is you have to be so focused on your business and so kind of, shall I say, like in the weeds mm-hmm. that you become, and you, you have to kind of fall in love with with that and what's happening and what's done and how it builds out and your team and that, that oftentimes it's difficult to step, you know something so incredibly well it's difficult to step back from that and kind of tell the, tell the broader story, tell the higher level story. Uh, there's a tendency to want to, um, you know, kind of stuff a thousand pounds into a one pound sack in the pitch deck. Um, and, uh, so what I try to do is, and a lot of times they bury the lead. They think it should go in a specific way and they, Mm. They buried the lead. It's like bullet point six. A couple weeks ago, I saw one where it was literally like slide seven, bullet point six. And there were two other things that they had said. And I was like, hold on, time out. This is your story. This is, this is your story. You need, this is what you need to, you know, talk about like on the first slide. <laughs> right. Is this is the story because people understand, they, they were, they were looking at putting in, getting into a new market and something that had um, done very well with other, how should I say it, similar, similar things in healthcare, but no one had yet addressed this portion of it. And it, it's not transferable. One, you couldn't transfer from one to the other one easily. Right. And they understood it better than anybody. They had advantages over the kind of old school surgical procedure but they weren't telling that story about like why this is totally different. Why the folks who are doing a, what, what was the entrepreneur's background? Technical. They're technical folks. More technical. Yeah. R&D. The, the, so I do healthcare and cyber and, and a lot, of, I do a lot of deck fixing. <laughs> they're not, they're not natural storytellers. Right. That's fine. But Yeah. Okay. That's, 
Uh, yeah. So um, this last this last group uh, of finalists. Now there are eight of them. They have a five minute pitch coming up, and uh, one of the things I told them is that you need to take your twenty. For example, one person who came in spoke. Did you need to take your twenty three slide deck and you like throw it out, turn the computer off, and stand at a whiteboard, and you need to figure. You need to draw like what. What are the five most important things you need to convey and how are you going to do that and work and work and work on the flow of that and what that mm. looks like. And when you've drawn it out and it makes sense, then go build. I know you said you do not like PowerPoint, but then go build your, then go build your PowerPoint. If you try to take 23 yeah, slides. And it, and it needs to be five slides. If it's five minutes, it needs to be five slides, not 23. <laughs> right. Like don't try to rush and get through it. People will get right. nothing. Right. You talked about right. the message being what investors are left with at the end. Um, and I say with five slides, like everyone needs to hit like a sledgehammer. There needs to be like one major blow your hair back, ideally, kind of point. Um, yeah. And I don't expect it to get necessarily to that level, but that idea of you're trying to hammer home one specific point on each slide. So when they leave, you said, the you know, that we keep one major thing with us. Mm-hmm. Maybe they keep a couple. Uh, but I go, that's, that's what questions are for. That's what you're the right. Q is. You're exactly right. You need to convince them that you're worth walking over to and talking to or picking up the phone or whatever it is that happens afterwards. What, what's going to make, what's going to make them want to talk to me again? You know, think of this pitch. I told one guy, and I don't know. I don't know if it was the right thing. I told a guy and a female entrepreneur, think of it as a first date. <laughs> what what would what do you want to convey to make them want to go on a second date? That's I it. actually have a LinkedIn post to that effect. <laughs> do you? I do. I'll have to send it to you. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm like. It's something to the effect of uh, you don't propose you don't propose marriage on the first date. No, Gen- generally. Generally, yeah. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had a group I was talking to over a year ago, and the one guy was like, "I did," and I was like, "Wow, you are." Wow, is he married? Is he still married? Yes. Good for him. Love at first sight. I was like, that is completely impressive and yes. also, yeah, not the norm. Well, no, you can teach them. Love at first sight. Huh. Okay. Good for him. He said he knew that she was the one. Well, we'll have, you'll have to dig him up and, and talk to the to the missus there. See if she, <laughs> yes, love at first sight. That would be I a guess, fun interview. I guess if it's, if it's love at first sight, it doesn't have to be returned initially because you wouldn't expect it to be. But the other person, I would, I don't know. We're going off on a tangent here. <laughs> That's okay. No, I have a, I have a good friend of mine, very happily married, two kids, like just such a totally awesome couple. Mm-hmm. And um, she said that when they first met, he was really, he was very taken with her, and she was like, "And eh, no." <laughs> That's kind of the way it is. There's always there's this unevenness. 
that's what I've always learned. And then it, it sort of evens out over time. I forget what she said, but it was like the third date. I think it was her brother who said, you know, go see him again. It's, you know, or he came up to see her or whatever. They were in different states at the time. And she was kind of like, mm. yeah. he's like, give it a couple of dates. So by the date three, she thought, hmm. He's growing up. Okay, good. Exactly. Good. Yeah, so I, yeah, I hear stories of kind of unevenness. I like the idea of. I should call him <laughs> and talk to him and his wife. That would be interesting. So any anything that I haven't asked you that you were hoping I would ask you or you would want kind of aspiring health IT, kind of enterprise med tech folks to, to know about pitching, know about I, I would just say be, be um, believing yourself. You know, the, 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 the seat we sit in is pretty hard and we're not going to uh, know everything. So, so every time if, you've, if you're faced with rejection, it's not always you. It could be an inability for someone to understand and to grasp, you know, frankly, the magnitude of what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's hundreds of VCs and, and potential investors to talk to. But, but certainly work with people like you, Maureen, that can help you refine your message so that you're putting your best foot forward. That's great advice. Yeah. Really the, the second part of that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, yeah, that, it's definitely true. There's, it's kind of, it's kind of, it, what it reminds me of is that someone says like they're golden dimples, right? The idea that they're, there are gems that were used before. Uh, in there, sometimes it's you have to mine a bit to get to them. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Figure out what they are and how to tell them and how to talk about it. Uh, so a couple kind of a little bit a little bit more fun questions. Uh, the um, when you think about yourself and kind of your career and coming up. For folks who are getting out of college and the idea of founding a company looks super exciting or getting into the investment field looks very appealing, uh, what kind of advice would you give them? I would say try to find a um, an industry that's that's a passion. Like, what do you have a passion for? And and something that you're – because generally if you're passionate about something, you'll you'll want to continue to learn. And you'll have the curiosity. So when I, when I interview someone younger, it really is their curiosity that that I'm trying to peg. I don't uh, I don't know everything. And if you're 22 or 25, you certainly don't know everything either. So you, you've got to be a learner. You've got to be a willing learner. Um, and I think the other thing is try to read a, a lot about the industry and what it does. I think a lot of people don't know really what VCs and private equity and, and growth equity people do. They have an idea, and 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 reach out and talk to us. I talk to I talk to dozens every year about my job. Don't want to get into it. I'll talk to anyone. That's yeah. That's great advice. That's yeah. great advice. So, uh, a more personal question: If if you could take 
let's say all of your responsibilities are momentarily erased for like three to five days and your wives and your kids don't have to go to school, where would you all travel to? Ooh, three to five days. Or longer. You can pick the time frame. How's that? <laughs> you know, my my two oldest, for some reason, out of nowhere, wanted to go to Australia. And it's not a place I wanted to go. I didn't dislike Australia. It just wasn't, you know, on the list. So just out of the sake of making them happy, Australia... Uh, but, but, and, and while we're over there in the neck of the woods, Hawaii, just because I'm always, I went there, uh, my freshman year at Stanford, we played in the Aloha Bowl. I went to Stanford on a football scholarship. And, um, I just think it's one of the prettiest places on earth. Any particular island? Uh, we were in the big island. And um, I, I would just love to walk on the beach and just hold my wife's hand. It's a beautiful place. That is amazing and a, and a wonderful place to end. If people want to get a hold of you, how should they do that? Uh, you can just reach out to me, lmarcus at edisonpartners.com. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed no uh, all your insights and sharing what's going on in healthcare IT and what's happening in the, how you work through the process of uh, deciding on an investment, sure. and demystifying that for folks. And uh, yeah, I wish you much happiness on your future trip to Australia with a stop in <laughs> <laughs> with your family. No problem. Of course. Well, uh, that's it for The Message Engineer. We'll see you next time.